Thank you for tuning in to the Beyond the Check Service Industry Podcast. If you're enjoying what you're listening to and all my amazing guests have to offer, please consider supporting the show by subscribing to our Patreon. The link is at the bottom of the descriptions. All donations go to support our ability to continue to bring you fun and informative content. We can never do it without support from the listeners like you. So thank you. I appreciate you all. And without further ado. All right. Let's do this thing then. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Check Service Industry Podcast, where we talk about all things service industry related and whatever else I feel like talking about. If you haven't yet, please go watch my television series, Beyond the Check Worker Earner Edition, now streaming on Amazon Prime and Tubi TV. Tubi TV, it's free TV. Yeah, go follow me at Rashawn Parker, R-E-Y-S-H-A-N, Parker everywhere and Beyond the Check everywhere. Yeah, cool. Awesome. I have a wonderful guest today. He's a fantastic chef, human being, and podcaster at the Culinary <laughs> uh, Libertarian. <laughs> I say that right? You did. The Culinary with, Libertarian. With, with dramatic pause between Very the dramatic. I'm all, I, 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 was, I was a thespian in high school, so. Acting! <laughs> you old enough to remember the, uh, was it the John Lovett scenes, but. Master thespian. Oh yes, master thespian. As I, I'm realizing, as as I advance in my time on this planet, that there is an entire era that more, more and more groups of people have no idea what that is. I look at me like, what? Said that life started when? Yeah, it's like dinosaurs, man. There's a lot that so. people don't know now, so it's it's actually a good time to just bring it all back because all the millennials have no idea what it is, <laughs> and they think it's super cool, whatever it is, right? I'm like, oh, well, it wasn't all super cool. I lived through a lot of that, so I mean, but that's another story. I mean, the rotary phone, you know, they don't get that. That was cool. I took one apart. Learned how it worked. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I took a few apart when I was a kid, particularly you know because you could twist off. That's how yeah. you used to bug the phone, right? You you twist off the receiver. Well, you could bug the phone. You could phone. hide things you didn't want found. Uh-huh. Man, the old phone, you can't hide anything in the new phones. Nope. Can't even get into them. Nope. Nope. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Reed. Hello there. <laughs> Who is that guy talking? <laughs> He's just has got a really cool, it's a really cool voice and uh, seems to know a lot about older stuff. Yeah, well, it's because I'm old. Oh, you're not old. You got less gray than I do. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it, it means you're looking good, sir. Well, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. It's because I have no hair. That's why I have less gray. Uh, well, I mean, beard-wise. You know, I mean, yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm going full. I'm working, working up to full, full-blown white. Just in the very front. It's weird. I don't, but who cares? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, how you been? I've been well. Well, that's good. Uh, how's, uh, how's sunny Cali? Well, I have no idea because they're south of me, but sunny Oregon finally oh, fuck, went I knew came that. back yesterday for about 10 minutes. We got a dusting of snow. What? And cold temperatures. It, yeah. ra- it, ra- it snowed? Yeah. Does it do that often? Only in the wintertime. Oh, uh, yeah. But it's been, we're, we're experiencing, now I, don't, I know there's weather words for this and I don't know what they are, but we're going through one of those weird 
ocean cycles. And it's really strange that we're getting ocean warmth on this side of the mountains. I'm on the uh, east side of the Cascades. And I don't know, usually, I don't know. I don't live in the mountains before. <laughs> but uh, but the, the heat is kind of climbing over the mountains and settling in where I live is a giant valley. It's called a basin. I don't know where uh, basin starts and valley ends, but it's this gigantic valley and we're warm where it really shouldn't be because we're not getting the amount of snow we would want to have during the winter so that we have water during the summer. So uh-huh. last summer was a bit of a drought problem. This summer is looking like it, unless we get so the Cali- seven feet of snow in two weeks, we're going to have a problem. So the California drought weather has worked its way all the way up to Oregon, huh? It seems to, and I'm sure it's not that simple, but like I said, I don't really, I don't know weather things, and this isn't my, this isn't my strength, but I just know that. <laughs> it's going to affect the crop somehow. It will affect the crop somehow, and probably in a bad way, and um, I don't particularly care for driving in snow. I don't particularly care for driving on icy snow roads. Oh, I really actually miss driving in snow. It's well, weird. You, you can have it. I don't I know, miss it's weird. a bit. I miss the stick shift, and I miss... I miss the stick shift. I miss the stick shift, and I miss just taking those, you know, just letting the car turn itself, you know? Like, <laughs> if you know how to drive in snow, it's actually a lot of fun, right? But and My 15-year-old daughter is learning to drive, and everything nowadays is front-wheel drive, which is fine. I'm just... And I, I, I just... Partly because we get snow so seldom, and we live in what's called a high desert, so it doesn't rain very often in the summertime. When it does, it gets really slick, and people oh, generally that's... don't know how to drive. No. That's part of the problem. They don't know what to do when the roads are slippery. And so even if you know how to drive on a snowy road, you can't trust the other people. You've got a big problem. <laughs> um, but I used to go skiing in high school in northern Michigan, and my car was a full-size station wagon, rear-wheel drive. They had no such thing as studded tires at the time. And I think, how, how did we go anywhere? I just got in the car and went. I didn't care. Say, I, how, uh-huh. how much did I just, I don't, I, I'm frozen to paralysis with thinking about doing that again. <laughs> just, I'm, that's, that's why I know I'm old, because I'm like my, I'm like my dad. I'm not driving on that aircraft. I mean, I remember having to like follow the follow the tracks in front of me, right? Like, yeah. So when I went to college, uh, I went to Ohio University, and so it's like the beginning of the Appalachians, right? So it's a very hilly town, and it's in Ohio, so it still snowed a lot. So in order for Kansas to, classes to be canceled, the dean had to declare, or he he literally couldn't get out of his driveway. So if it was a level two. You still had to go to class if the dean could get out of his driveway. Makes sense. If it was a level three, that was the only way schools were getting closed because that's like you're not allowed to go anywhere. But I remember many, many, many a days just following the tracks in front of me, super slow, yeah. just to like get to class in a level two snowstorm because the dean is too much. Yeah, you know, he probably had four wheel drive too. Fucking asshole. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I don't think I I was in northern Michigan in the blizzard of 78 and we we lived on the street called Hill Street but they had to use you know those giant construction graders that's how they had to plow the snow nothing else could get through and the the 
bank of plowed snow was about 10 feet high. Ugh. They canceled school for that. <laughs> but generally in northern Michigan, I don't no, no, no. remember them. Like, there's two feet of snow. What's wrong with you? You're going to school. Oh, no. <laughs> if it flurries here, if it even gets cold enough to flurry, they will close schools in, in Georgia. It's funny. Like, seriously. Yeah, well. 27 degrees, close it. <laughs> Can't have the kids come out in this weather. No way, man. <laughs> no way. But they don't even get, like, the snow day. It's just, like, they're just off. <laughs> and it's cold. I don't know what they do. Yeah. They watch Netflix at home and play video games. Anyway, um, let's talk about some food. Okay. Um, what what started your culinary journey to chefdom? Do you was it was it well, was, was it inspiration from a family member who cooked as a child, or where, where'd you? No, there's the. My mother was probably a pretty decent cook, you know, and I'm I I lived to survive it. I. I she wasn't an amazing cook, but she did she did a good job and we liked the food, so we ate it. Nobody in my family was in the restaurant business and, and I and I knew nothing. it's like I knew nothing of the restaurant business at all. I had no idea what it was like and you you certainly can't get at the time the only people to watch on TV cooking were Graham Kerr, which was he was just fun to watch. Was that or the old was, Southern dude? No, that was the Galloping Gourmet. The Gallop, uh, but he always wore like a blue shirt. He's taught, have kind of a Texas accent. Uh, no, Graham Kerr definitely. Yeah, no, it's not Graham Kerr. I've no. been trying to remember who this guy was. My grandfather used to have it on all the time, and he'd just be like, "Woohoo!" And he'd add some hot sauce and be like, "Yeah." It sounds like sounds like Justin, the New Orleans guy. Justin was funny. Justin was. Wait, he was like he was like an older guy. Yeah, it sounds like Justin. I don't remember his last name. Oh man, but woo on PBS like a bolo tie. Yeah, yeah. That's Justin. That's Justin something. I'm gonna look that up. Justin something. He was fun, but um, so either that or Julia Child that she was on PBS. So I had I really truly had no idea what it meant to work in a restaurant. So I got a job, you know, as a busboy, but never as a cook. so I thought this was a good idea. I thought it would be an easy job. Busing? Sure. <laughs> no, cooking. Oh, cooking. So no, definitely not. Boys, boys and girls, <laughs> for you playing at home, <clears throat> restaurant cooking is not an easy job. It mm. is not 40 hours a week. It is not, oh my gosh, the, look, it's 5 o'clock. I got to go home. It's <laughs> <laughs> so 5 o'clock. You just got to work. You just got, yeah. It's, it's, we haven't even started yet. So... There, there, there was no familial historical basis for this decision. It just sounded like something that was interesting. I liked eating. I had no idea how to cook. I certainly didn't know how to bake anything and, and ruin more stuff than I succeeded at. <laughs> and still did it anyway. So uh, in Michigan, in, in the Detroit area, there were a couple of culinary schools, and I went to one of them. And now, nineteen-year-old logic is boy logic. Nineteen-year-old male human logic is a particularly odd thing because it isn't <laughs> logic at all. <laughs> so, this particular nineteen-year-old was going to school, paying to go to school to learn from these pretty well-experienced instructors and chefs. But I also had a job at a fairly well-known in Detroit area restaurant, and the Michigan Detroiters will know the name 
uh, Douglas Douglas. He was a Chadsey High School superstar named Doug Dreck. And in his heyday, and now again, he's a pretty good cook. So a 19-year-old says, well, you know, I'm being paid to work and learn about food, or I'm paying to go to school. Well, duh. Obviously, <laughs> quit school and go to work. Right. Well, so that was the decision. And all these years later, I don't really regret the decision because the course over 40 years, and we're not going to go through all that, was – uh, I, I met some and worked for some extraordinary people, so I don't regret the decision quitting school. Um, but my my focus ended up sort of all over the place. It took a while to get my feet under me because everything looked interesting, and everything everything can be interesting. But eventually, found my way to really being immersed in classical French cooking. And, and not just to say that you've done it, but to really dive into it. And that's, you, you need some specialized training and some specialized people to get to that level. And I, I just bought in and went completely way, way down the <laughs> rabbit hole of classical French cooking. With probably and, a, lot, a lot of rabbit. Well, a little bit of rabbit, a little bit of rabbit, uh, a lot of, lot of beef, um, but a lot of pain, a lot of hours, a lot of sweat, a lot of cuts, a lot of burns. There's Julia Childs wasn't enough, huh? Oh no, no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. So she was, she was good, but there's, there's, and I, I know that that I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. I wouldn't be an advocate and say you have to go. Young cooks go have to go learn to do this because. Did. You don't? It's it's hard. And, you know, I don't know very much about playing tennis other than the fact that I'm, I know that I'm very, very bad <laughs> at the game. But I also recognize there are people who are spectacularly good. And I'm from an era where John McEnroe was the guy. But, and a super entertaining guy to watch, too. And an entertaining guy to watch. But, but a fantastic, amazing skilled tennis player. Now, maybe part of that was just his DNA. Who knows? But there's there's something about excellence. And so, you know, I often uh, talk about Michael Jordan. Whether you like Michael Jordan or don't like Michael Jordan, it's pretty hard to argue that he was bad at his job. Michael was a spectacular example of what an NBA player can accomplish or a human can accomplish with, well... Those a shoes. Com committed effort. You, <laughs> it wasn't the shoes. It wasn't the shoes. It wasn't the um, shoes. So Johnny Mac or Michael or anybody you hold up at, in a craft or a skill as excellence put a lot of time into that. Kobe Bryant, the same way. And I've, I don't really follow Kobe, but I've come to discover that Kobe had a work ethic that was mostly unrivaled by contemporaries in the NBA. Now, I don't know if that's a factual statement, but Kobe worked hard. Kobe earned oh, yeah. the things he got. So to, to earn the level of craftsmanship necessary to succeed in classical French cooking means, at least in my experience, you surrender a dozen years of your life to a stove. You get married to an inanimate object. So did you and spend... You 
Did you spend 12 years just learning French techniques specifically? Not just specifically. I, I, I worked where I could get the job, but worked with people who focused on that. So, uh, and sometimes there were breaks. But I came back to it again and again and again. And, my, and then when I ended up after all that time, I turned that cooking experience into teaching. I worked at a, a private community college in Tallahassee, Florida, teaching culinary arts. And my, I can't reach it, but up in the corner is my, my copy of Ligide Culinaire, well tattered. The, the binding is kind of torn. It's got little sticky notes in it from 30 years. Well, no, not 30 years ago, but many years ago. Lots of passages are underlined from, from heavy, heavy use and heavy use for reference and for getting into it. And the chief purpose is I see it from getting an understanding of what classical cooking is. It's not to know all 5,700 recipes. That's fine, but that's just memorization. Really, it's... Technique, right? It's technique. So there is a way to make a stock. Now, there's a slightly various... There's a slight variation on the technique if you're going to make a brown stock, like a roasted veal stock or a beef stock, because you wouldn't want a white beef stock. That would not be a pleasant taste. There would be any reason <laughs> to do that, since one of the principal reasons we cook is for flavor so there are help. basics fundamentals in stock making there are basics and fundamentals in sauce making and all of those kinds of those basics and those fundamentals exist in um, meat cookery fish cookery chicken cookery vegetable cookery and yeah you can cook fruits so it's not that it's intimidating because it's 5,700 recipes. It's intimidating because to now Escoffier cooked for kings. So there is an obvious expectation that the king is going to get the absolute best that there is. That's somebody else's podcast, whether that's actually <laughs> the case or not. But it's recognized that that should be so, at least if you're the king. So there is, there is a... There is an expectation out of doing classical French cooking that it's going to be the best there is. Do you have to have truffles and foie gras to make classical French cooking? Absolutely not. There is a dish in there called Chicken Maryland. Oh, my gosh, Chicken Maryland. It's fried freaking chicken, folks. <laughs> All it is. Really? No kidding. It's fried chicken. It's just fried chicken. It's so just fried chicken. Made the same way, southern egg, you, egg drenched in egg. Yes. Flour and fried. It's fried chicken. Boom. <laughs> so, so it sounds amazing, but it's it, it, it sounds terrifying until you take the mystique out of it. So chicken Maryland is fried chicken. So you can be fancy tonight and make fried chicken. Look, honey, I made chicken Maryland. And fried chicken crosses almost every ethnic cooking culture across the world. Almost every culture has a fried chicken. That almost certainly has to be true. Yeah, it, it is true. But I, I would think but, possibly the, the Inuits may not have no, fried chicken. Maybe not the Inuits, but it, but like from China all to Russia to no, you think, know yeah. to you know to Mexico, we are frying chicken. There is around a the world version of fried chicken, absolutely. And the technique is inherently the same across borders. Does 
you know, when, when ta- thinking about like other cuisines, so like uh, the opposite of the world, they have different ways of even just slicing their vegetables, right? So if you go to Korea, like Korean housewives, Korean chefs, they don't slice things the same way that American trained chefs do. Have you ever noticed that? That there's not like one I, way to julienne an onion. There's actually multiple different ways. And you see, and you see them do it and you're like, you're doing it wrong. Right, but they're like, no, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, now the onion thing is interesting because if because as they, as the student in school being taught now in at the risk of generalizing, most culinary schools probably teach the classic French way of cutting in the onion, which obviously you peel it, cut it in half, um, through put the root end down so that you're cutting it. Um, sort of through the equator, no, wrong words, through the, through the poles, north to south, turn it on its flat side, and then make cuts down, they cut sideways, and then finally chop it. And it's, and because this is what you're being taught in school, most students aren't going to say, no, I'm not doing that because I have to chop this onion to get a grade, and I have to get the good grade, blah, 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 blah. Fine, whatever. I understand that. But if you, Examine the construction of the onion for more than a second, you realize <laughs> that it came to you already kind of pre-sliced. Yeah. You just have to figure out how to use its shape to your advantage. And there's a way to do that. And so when the first time I saw people either cutting juliennes by sort of following the the shape of the onion, it's like, well, this is interesting. This looks this feels wrong because my chef instructor said this is this is the wrong way to do it, and this is th- that statement. Right. I was taught something different. So this is, is wrong. The is a terrible, terrible statement. Only on the face that there's no certainty that what you were taught in cooking, in law, in economics, in history, in writing was quote-unquote, the right right way. way. It was the right way on that day to get the grade you preferred from the person giving the grade for doing the thing they preferred. So, so yes, now I don't know too much about uh, Vietnamese cooking. I I know a little bit about Vietnamese food. They they peel the opposite direction, too. So like <laughs> they do. I noticed that. that that's <laughs> kind of it's like watching a left-handed person cut with a knife. My fingers hurt because <laughs> I just I couldn't do that. No, but watching them go quickly with a French knife, I just yeah. <laughs> so right, my wife are, my wife's determined to cut all vegetables with a paring knife. It's so annoying to me. That would and, I, and, I, I would be triggered by that. And I find myself saying, walking, going, can you just do it the right way? <laughs> and she's like, it's. There's not a right way. Let me just do it my way. <laughs> like, but you're not. You're doing well, it when, wrong. And she gets George, so mad. Is she there, Jordan? Can you hear this? <laughs> no, Tell him if he wants to eat, you'll click. You'll cut it the way you want to. Uh, um, when she, yeah. when I can get her to actually try to make something, yeah. <laughs> so I just have to stay out of the kitchen, so I'm not there telling her she's doing it wrong. Well, so you know, it's is interesting because there's so as the as the instructor. Now, there's, I was kind of that, well, dickhead about you're not cutting it right. And then, then the, 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 there is a reason to put cooks 
through the process of learning knife skills. There, there are reasons that a piece of carrot cut too big and a piece of carrot cut too small is undesirable uh, in a saute pan. Because mm -hmm. then the small pieces burn before the big pieces are fully cooked. Right. And that one is aesthetically bad, but even more important, it imparts a burn flavor into the food, and nobody wants that. So having a uniformity in your knife skills does actually serve a purpose. Oh, for sure. I mean, but, you, you have to be able to, like, you know, <clears throat> use the knife before. <laughs> yes. So we... You would want a surgeon to know how to use the scalp. Well, I, I think I think the thing's here. What if we cut over here? Oh, damn. <laughs> I missed. It's over here. So we, we, we want some training. Surgery is uh, much more significantly important than whether or not you cut your carrots the right way. I mean, I'm but not going to – I have trouble I have trouble piecing up a chicken still. Like, And it's relatively there for you. The roadmap's – Pretty much on the chicken for yeah, you already. It is. Well, you know? and so we, we went through at one restaurant uh, in Southfield, Michigan. Uh, we used to get 160 chickens, 80 at a time, twice a week, week after week after week after week. And it was a, it was a chicken cutting party. Everybody <laughs> not doing something came over, got a knife, and you cut chicken. Let me tell you what. You learn real quick how to cut a chicken. If you want to do it efficiently. Okay. That was also a restaurant run by the first certified master chef, Mijos Milos Sihalka. Boy. Yeah, it's a, it's a mouthful, quite, Dan. It's a mouthful, it is, Dan. And that was just water, as far as you know. <laughs> <clears throat> Milos Sihalka escaped Czechoslovakia to come to Canada and then to the U.S. and was. You know, I've, I've known a handful of certified master chefs and some of them from the very old guard. Like we're talking, you know, the old French German hardcore meanie pants chefs. So and there there was actually like a title given at one point of Yeah, the American Culinary Federation master chef. hands out. You no, know, they don't hand out. <laughs> they, award. They, they, they award. <laughs> although and now I think it has been I think I think the 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 test has been diminished from what it originally was, but when when it first was created, it was a two weeks adventure at the Culinary Institute of America, and it and it was brutal, absolutely brutal. And uh, Brian Polson's maybe his second book follows. Um, no, Polson, Brian Polson's the cook. Who's the, who's the, I forgot the author. Anyway, um, Brian Polson used to be a uh, sous chef for Milos and went, still has a place as far as I know, in sort of in suburban Detroit, uh, went and took the test. Didn't pass, but put the, it's hard. But pass, so passing the CMC test is a really big deal. Uh, and it means you can do damn near everything there is to do in the uh -huh. kitchen, including bake and pastry, which, most now most chefs if do you one ask, or the other. Yeah, and and they can be amazing line cooks. They can manage nine saute pans and the griddle. Everything comes out fine. Say, hey, I need you to go make some biscuits. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, ain't I, I will cut off my foot and dissect it for you, and I will make a galantine from my toes, but I will not make a muffin. And there's something weird 
about how, and it works the other way around. He asked the bait, he asked the pastry chef, and as you go across the line, I ain't doing that. I don't know what the hell to do. I don't know what a saute pan is. So there's there's this weird line where cooks, really highly skilled, amazing, technically proficient cooks, won't touch the other a biscuit side. or a muffin. No, I ain't yeah. doing that. No way. Now, so, I mean, you see the people on MasterChef, right? And you, you ever watch MasterChef? Yeah, uh, that's the Gordon Ramsay show, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's all around the world now. But. Yeah, I used. I actually, I kind of met. I liked. I like. <laughs> I, I like that show. I don't watch it much anymore. I don't watch TV pretty much at all anymore. But when it was on, I liked it. I like the kid version better. They're much more friendly. I, I had a. I had a. I had no. a. I had a contestant on um, a couple weeks ago who was on uh, season three. And those uh, kids are amazing. The kids that cook on that, and there's one. Gordon's nicer to the kids, and it's nice to see that Gordon. I mean, he's got kids, so he knows how to be a nice person. Yeah, and but the kids I'm are just nice to each other. Yeah, yeah. but they're freaking, they can cook. Yeah, like, it's amazing, crap. right? Like, there's an eight year old. Eight year old. Like, making coke and and like, you fucking just ingredients I've never heard of, and you're seven. Like, come on. The, the, <laughs> It, most it may impressive. have happened again, but the one I remember the most, and I don't remember who the kid was, and I think it, I don't know what the dish was, but what stood out to me was Joe took a bite of it, looked at the kid, put his fork down, pulled out 20 bucks and said, I would pay you this <laughs> right now for that meal. That's how good this dish is. I'm like, holy crap. Right? You get a guy going into his wallet because you cooked that well. Dude, you and won it's not just it's not just a guy, it's Joe. Yeah, <laughs> Joe, like the like he, he makes Gordon look like a saint. <laughs> but that was like that's that's impressive. And then they they kids don't mess with cook. Joe's grandma either. She's no, I I, I like I like my she, uh, that's his mom or his grandma. Oh, I think it's mom, but I, I think it's his mom. Yeah, it was I don't mom. think about the grandma, but yeah, Marcella Hassan, she was good, but Joe. Joe's a, Joe's a ball breaker, but I respect him. Yeah, those kids, though. I, like, I, when I was a kid, I was, you know, my, my, my crowning achievement was I could make brownies from scratch. Like, I could take. Hey, don't knock <laughs> that. That's a, that's a big deal. And it's just because I wanted brownies, right? And I wasn't really allowed what to have them. What motivation do you need than I want to eat something than to go learn to do it? Yeah, but if I could take the bitter chocolate. And I could make my own chocolates, you know, sauce. I God, I don't even know if I remember how I did it. But yeah, I would, you know, take that bittersweet, nasty chocolate because that's what was kept in our house because my mom knew that we weren't going to get into it. Oh, you kept the baking chocolate. Uh huh. Baking. Awesome. <laughs> so you try, yeah. No. The- you try to get into it, and you're just like, oh, this isn't right. Yeah. No. This, this, this is- that is not a pleasant experience. So if we wanted chocolate, we had, it had to be it had to be turned into edible chocolate. See? <laughs> Otherwise it was carob. And we had a ton of carob in our house. Is your mom diabetic? No, she's an herbalist. So we, Oh, okay. We had, you know, we at my at my grandparents' house was where the cereal and the candy and the and the donuts and all that stuff was. But oh, but, yeah. but at home it was bulgur wheat and buckwheat pancakes and our candy was I shit you not um, lilacs. Is it lilac? the little purple flowers that grow in the yard? Yeah, in spring they're coming up. 
Yeah, um, so she'd pick those, and she'd put a light sprinkling of sugar on them and bake them. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was violets, our candy. There was violets. 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 violets, yeah. Violets are probably more common, although, and now this is interesting. I have a lilac tree in back, and I didn't do it last year, but um, a friend of mine is, well, used to be a, a spectacular bartender. He would nice. I mean, anybody can pour out of a bottle. It's the it's the mixing, yeah. and the mixes. So he made all of his own mixes, everything from scratch. I'm like wow, I Bitter, like this bitters and everything. Yeah, and so uh, simple syrups, flavored simple syrups for as far as you can see. But one thing he didn't do, and I'm going to do this year, is make a lilac infused simple syrup. To then figure out what to do and make that into a drink, you know, I'm, uh, I'm one s- of, some Saint Germain, little little champagne, <laughs> little lilac. Hey, see, the, okay, that's and I, I'm not, I think that's fine. I'm just we got to figure out the use to do the rest of the champagne, which won't be hard. Um, <laughs> okay, so that's a good idea. Uh, um, gin also. Um, well, see here, Oregon, on top of being. A spectacular place for blackberries and hazelnuts and salmon. There are and, and, and beer, lots and lots and lots of, of uh, small beer places. They have a few gin distilleries, and they're make. And I like good gin. They make some amazing, like holy crap! This is good gin. Right, Not, it's hard. It's hard to like gin. <laughs> I don't. Know, I don't know, but I feel like gin is one of the. Well, tougher alcohols to like unless you're going to spend like hendrix is fantastic hendrix is like this isn't gin this is delicious well try these other things so look for them and and because i'm here it's easy for me to find but i also i like i like juniper i like that kind of foresty floral i like i'm i i can't i'm i'm fine with and i appreciate subtlety but i kind of want punch in the face flavor i want big and bold so gin delivers on that because it's got that – I want that mm-hmm. big juniper up front. But the stuff to do in here, it's – obviously, it's got the juniper. Coriander and fennel and, and just on and on with the aromatics. I'm like, wow. It's like they knew what was coming. And just so, a little, little spritz of absinthe. <laughs> maybe. That, that's a big deal. That's coming back. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, I was uh, – a place called Seawolf in Tybee Island saw it in my show uh, last year, and spritz of absinthe was a was a big deal to them. I don't know, just a spritz. It's not like there's a bunch of it. It's just like a little spritz that just gives it like that very light licorice. Yeah. Flavor. Uh, so like uh, Pernod and Ricard are the same flavors, but I don't think they come with. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they have the wormwood, which anyone no. has done their absinthe history. Yeah, that's some uh, some funky stuff. That no, stuff. I don't think we can get real absinthe in America. Can we? Uh, you know what? Honestly, I don't know. I think at some point, some years ago, whoever the they are who make those restrictions lifted those restrictions, and it used to be a worldwide ban on on proper wormwood infused absinthe. Uh, absinthe. I think. Uh, that's gone. I think you could, the closest you could get for a while was pastis, but I think absinthe is actually back, at least in France and maybe here in the U.S. too. I don't know. 
I think I did hear that. Like, no, it's real. And I'm like, but, but it's still. I don't think it's. I don't think it's what it was. Oh, you I will know. accept that. I don't. You know. If if it's back, I am sure it is not as it used to be. And <laughs> <laughs> you can find the, the go, go look at the Monet paintings and yeah, why did he paint like that? Oh well, Wormwood. No, I'm not. Could have been Monet. the absinthe. Could have been. I mean, he, he could have been on mushrooms too. We don't know. <laughs> Hard to say. He's not here to defend himself. He's not. I mean, something made him cut his... Or that wasn't Monet. Because <laughs> Picasso cut his ear off. Uh, something. I don't know. I don't, you don't do that sober. I feel like I feel like you're not just like, you know what? I'm going to do it today. I'm going to cut my ear off. No. Look how much I love you. Cut, cut, cut. <laughs> that, 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 does, that does sound bizarre. <laughs> it was... Yeah, I mean, he did it. Probably the absinthe. I don't know. Well, no, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Uh, so lilac infused. You're gonna you're gonna make that. You're gonna make a a lilac. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make that, and I think so. The lilac and the aromatic gin and um, little Saint Germain. Uh, little Saint Germain, Dan. <laughs> you know what? I actually have a bottle of in the other room is um, Fernet Branca. Which kind? Fernet Branca. Fernet Branca. Uh, it's one of those. So in the in the lines of Saint Germain and um, uh, what's the one that's made from artichokes? Sinar. Uh, so it's a it's the digestif. So okay. this stuff it tastes like. Now they'll be mad at me, but I'm I'm not wrong. It tastes a little bit. It's a lot bit like cough syrup, and one of the. <laughs> Yeah. One one of the myths about how it's made is witches and warlocks on the full moon, the seventh day of the seventh month, get together and they chant over the cauldron and make this stuff. It has kind of like Jaeger, but that's warlocks. Kind of like Jaeger, <laughs> but this stuff I think is better. And Jaeger doesn't purport to have medicinal properties. It just get, it just makes your legs disappear. The Fanny Bracca <laughs> isn't made for more than just a shot of it. And it could be used as a mixer, but I just do a shot or half a shot for <laughs> like the Waltons. Now, there's a show for you, parts. Um, <laughs> the Waltons. It, it actually it sort of undoes unwellness. So if you've if you've imbibed too much in it before, you had food poisoning, or you feel like the flu is coming on, a Lafreniere Branca, and you're all set. Touche. Um, there was a uh, Fernet. You like fernet? I don't know what that is. Uh, Fernet's a very herby <clears throat> aperitif. Again, like it's it's almost. Have you ever had like an echinacea tincture, or like, or like no, or like, but, an, or like an herbal <laughs> tincture of any kind? Probably you're, not. You're in Oregon. You should be able to find some somewhere. <laughs> well, I probably could, but I don't know. I know. I haven't looked for them. I'm no. sure they're here. So it's just it's 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 almost just a very herb based liquor. I don't actually like it, but a lot of people love it and it's it's good for settling your stomach. It's good for it's it's actually a medicinal liquor. I think because it's mainly a a, a tincture really is what it is. Right. But <clears throat> we I grew up with tinctures. So like whenever we were sick, like I was I was being fed alcohol as a child. I didn't even realize it. It was just like Echinacea tincture when you have a cold, and you know, 
doesn't <laughs> getting getting well vix does it still vix was it vix 44 that was booze i mean we all we all had that as kids but it wasn't every night you had it when you were sick and it you know, mm-hmm. shot us on the comfort did the same thing it's you sweat out the bad and then you find the next day well you know what else we had garlic oil rubbed on our feet and put into our ears yeah, we didn't do that. Yeah, that was that was that was a cold remedy as a child. We all stank to high hell. <laughs> you were healthy. The vampires weren't fucking with us. That was for sure. You know, maybe part of the effectiveness of garlic on your feet was that it was preventative early form of social distancing. They didn't get close <laughs> enough to you to make you sick. <laughs> <laughs> not the antibiotic properties of it at all <laughs> you know that joke two years ago would have been useless it would have totally been useless now it makes now it's sense. funny yeah <laughs> garlic keeps vampires away and fully keeps you fully social distant <laughs> six feet is a lot farther than people think it is it is a lot farther than people think it is, and it's completely useless. But that also is another show, right? But still, I was <laughs> I was impressed by somebody one day was was at my house, and they're like, "Have you ever? You think we're standing far enough apart?" And I was like, "Um, yeah, I, I don't know what. Yeah, sure." And he's like, "Well, hold on, let me just show you what six feet really is." And he fucking pulled, he pulled out his <laughs> he had a tape measure, and he's like, "That's six feet," and I'm like, "Holy shit, that's like." That's far. Like, there's no way in hell that anybody's staying six feet away from fucking anybody. <laughs> Certainly not having a discreet conversation. <laughs> no, no. Or or sitting at dinner or, you know, anything. It's, I mean, I'm six foot two. So I just assume, like, if you lay me down, that, you know, it, I'm, it, I'm taller than I think I am. That's... that's just well, that you know, it's, it's magic, though, when you sit down at a restaurant table... It's nullified. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you're sitting. Or it's eating. magic. Yeah, and drinking. Yeah. As long as you're drinking. Only when you stand up, you have to step back three feet. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Logic magic. does not, is not America's greatest quality. But, alas, we will argue over the, in, the, the ins and outs of not being logical forever. <laughs> I don't know. Common sense, common sense has been lost on. I through well, it, I it never was common to begin with, but yes, it's pretty much gone. But don't don't. You're getting funnier by the second, Dan. Am I? <laughs> keep me around longer. See what else happens. So, can you bake? I can bake. In fact, um, later today, I'm so uh, as as a restaurant. Baker, and then uh, end up having jobs as the head bakers of restaurants. Commercial baking, of course, is for the most part a big, big fan of gluten. We like gluten. It makes the croissants nice. It makes the Danish nice. Makes the breads nice. It makes the cakes nice. And my wife has developed an autoimmune disease, and one of the things we've had to change to help her manage that is go gluten-free. Really? Yeah. So because I like things that are challenging, gluten-free baking is a challenge. Now, where... I have a great cookbook for you. Well? 
Tell me in a minute. There's so when you bake with gluten, you have you can choose all-purpose flour, bread flour, cake flour, whole wheat flour, basic flour, and then there's different brands in those categories. But the choices are rather small. You know, you're gonna make bread. You make bread flour. That's what you're gonna use. And you can argue over this company, that company has 12 percent or 14 percent. Who cares? Um, it doesn't make a difference. But when you go into gluten-free baking. It's not like you can just go to the store and get a bag of one-to-one gluten-free mix for all-purpose mix. You can, but, uh, big secret, none of them are one-to-one. They say they are. Use this exactly as the same as your gluten-filled flour. Wrong. Wrong. Why is it wrong? It's, it's, well, so I will speak from my experience and not call the company liars. I'm not sure that they're (laughs) lying, but I'm saying from my own experience – Replacing one-to-one didn't work. So my my knowledge of what baking should be helps a little bit, but gluten. So in the world of what's going to be a good challenge, gluten-free baking is a good challenge because there are easily a dozen, maybe eighteen different kinds of individual grain flours you can use mm-hmm. apart or combined in particular ratios, then either guar gum, which, nah, who cares? Xanthan gum is kind of the big deal. You ever tried pumpkin? Pumpkin flour? No, not, uh, no, I, not yet. P- pumpkin just as, as the filler. So there's a great book um, called Brownies for Breakfast by Lynn. You want Bowman. to know something that's really amazing? Huh. Lynn's my next week's guest Oh yeah, my podcast. It's oh, Pokemon there you go. <laughs> no, Lynn's so, great. Yeah. She's gonna yell at you. <laughs> you did. I spoke to her for an hour and a half. It's it. I've just got to. I've got to go through the. Yeah. So yeah, her, her yelling was get rid of dairy, get rid of dairy, get rid of dairy, and exercise. No meat, no meat, no meat. And she wasn't. She was pretty close. She said, "If you have to have it, a little bit." So yeah. Um, she made me promise I was gonna. I, I wasn't gonna touch cheese again, and I would. I would just use vegan cheese, but I have epically failed. I am so sorry, Lynn. I'm well, going to try harder. She got no such thing out of me, and I wouldn't have <laughs> promised anyway. I would not have agreed to that because I'm a big cheese fan. <laughs> I was vegetarian at the time, so I was I was trying. Uh, it was just a month thing. I just randomly I try to be healthier every once in a while. So, like, do pull pull off a month. I, and I try to eat vegetarian at least three times a week, like, just because I don't need to have all that meat. Like, there's plenty of good stuff that doesn't... I don't have to have a steak be the hero of my meal every day. And I just get sick of it. Like, I just get tired of... I don't... A chicken steak, chicken beef, chicken <laughs> pork, chicken... You know? And it's like... I need another animal to kill, or I just have to start cooking differently. Because I'm just so bored with the proteins, you know? I know that's weird. You, you ever get bored of the proteins? Because I'm bored of the proteins. The look on your face says I, no. I don't. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that my wife and I go over, we don't go at it a lot, but she prefers a wider variety with greater frequency than I do. I'm perfectly fine having two or three or four eggs and bacon for breakfast pretty much every day. I don't mind that because I can 
because because every day the eggs are cooked a little bit different. So to me, it's it's a whole new experience where right. I can make them into an omelet. I don't. I really, I'm perfectly fine with that, and I'll change it up now and again. Um, but so because she wants more variety of more things more often, I don't get tired of them because I can find so many ways to do those things. So the chicken can be roasted one day, then the leftovers are turned into chicken salad and cut it thin, use it to stir fry, um, make it into a soup, make it into a, like, um, like a fricassee or a Popeye mix. And then that has a couple of applications. So there's always things to do that, even though it's the same thing, it can be, pressed into service in some of the way with its accompanying items makes it look like it's not the same thing. So <laughs> it's, like ta- I, it's like Taco Bell. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, it's, I think the last time I went there on purpose was, uh, 78 maybe. Wow. Well, they still have a million things on the menu and five ingredients. So, you're not, you're not, you're not I, I, missing yeah. much. Well, no, I don't. I don't think so. I, I didn't. I mean, I was a kid at the time, but it it had. Um, uh, I, I remember my cousins complaining that Taco Bell had a particularly powerful fermentation process in all of our digestive systems. It's actually got rated uh, the healthiest fast food out there. Like last year, I don't know if that's true or not. I just know that the if you order uh, properly, because level of flatulence was <laughs> off the chart. It was it was it was room clearing, <laughs> eye watering, <laughs> gag inducing. Like we're not doing that again. So all right, you stay away. You stay well. We'll stay away from the bell, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that. Uh, uh, they got a seven layer burrito. Let's, it's just all pretty good for you. It's rice, rice, beans, lettuce, cheese, tomatoes, sour cream, guacamole. Yeah. So it's just all vegetables, right? So I think I think it's the seven layer burrito that got them the uh, the old healthiest thing because could be. It's all just compared to other fast food places, right? Not like yeah. I'm, eh. I, I I think they're all. I, I think they all are the same level of bad. Why don't we have healthy fast food? Why? Why? Why don't we have healthy fast food? Do, do people think that it, they just want? No one's going to go to it, right? Like, or is is it is it the to not cost not effective, right? Well, so that it sounds like a really it sounds like a good question, and it actually is a good question. It requires at least one explanation. What is healthy? Fresh, not processed, right? Like, and I think the problem is that it's it's not scalable, right? It's not corporately scalable to be able to have, you know, and to be able to pull up to a drive-through window and get like a you know a good kale salad and a farm fresh piece of chicken, right? Like, it's just it's not scalable unless you literally had oh. a full-on farm-to-table fast food restaurant, right, which just operated with all their local farms, and menus were all slightly different because maybe the ingredients weren't available, right? And so to make it the McDonald's cookie-cutter corporate expansion is is a difficult thing well, in it, and of itself. It sounds like there's two things. Having a, 
excuse me, having a fast food restaurant. There's a, and I don't, there's a place in my town. Uh, it's, it's, it happens to be a Mexican place. And um, I don't know if it's a chain. I've never seen it before. It could just be that it's this one in this town. And they do one, one thing. To, this has nothing to do with the food immediately, but the place is immaculately clean. <laughs> Shiny. And as a cook. Like, like an Apple store. Not that immaculately clean, but. <laughs> but pretty fucking clean. But it's a restaurant. So when you walk in and you look at the back line, the griddle is clean. Now, it's in use, so it may, it may not be shiny metal, but I don't want that from a griddle. I know that that's not going to be the case, but it's not covered in drips and goo from the last nine weeks. The, the stainless steel wall in the back is clean. I can see where someone cleaned it down. The floor in the front is clean. The, the line, you know, like if you go into a subway, they have a line where they put stuff. And mm-hmm. there's a place called Moe's, and it's the same idea. You send this down. This is um, assembly line food. Kind of piecemeal. Yeah. Yes, that's the word. Thank you. Assembly line, but it's 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 clean, and you and you don't really pay attention at first. I say, wait a minute, this place is clean. Holy crap, this place is clean. <laughs> I want to come back here. It's just because it's. Uh, because I feel it, sanitary. You, yeah, if they care enough to keep the place looking nice, then I feel that they care enough to make sure that the ingredients are well tended to. And that's thought it was true, but it's a, certainly is a nice visual comfort as the guest. It's like, wow, how about I eat what it looks like they care about the place. But it smells good. I walk in the place and it smells good. I door dash there. And um I walk in, I oh, man, this place smells great. They're fast, it's clean, it's organized. They probably come as close as is possible to what you're talking about. Now, I don't, now I think the problem really would lie in, because we're out west, it is. You have the mentality. Well, it's, well, uh, beef is obtainable. There are ranchers not that far from here. Now, part of, part of the problem, part of one of the answers to your question about why, why is it not the case that you can just go and build a, a fast food restaurant that has fresh chicken and fresh beef? Part of the answer to that is the federal government and the Wholesome Food Act of 1967. Mostly, for commercial purposes, you can't go to your farm down the street and say, I need a dozen chickens. I need, I want two tenderloins. I want a half a cow. They can't do that. They're just not allowed. They're not, no, well, let's go back to that. Not allowed. Hmm. Hmm. That's a problem. So. Yeah. Like I, I, why, why, why can't I buy fresh produce and, and meat from my local purveyor? Because your overlord said you can't. My overload? Overlords. My overlords. <laughs> well, fuck them. <laughs> Who gave them so, permission to be my overlords? Well, now, that's also another show. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to do another show, Dan. <laughs> um, oh, well, they... No one gave it to them. They just flat out took it. So, But restaurants, you know, we have a lot of farm-to-table you know, restaurants around the country now. And, you know, 
Do you, is it a special license? You know that, or does it does it need to go through Cisco? Is that the thing? Is it lobbyists holding on to, you know, their profits? Well, what what is coming from the farm that's being served at those farm the table restaurants? Is it protein or is it mostly produce? I mean, I've been I've been to several where it's all of the above, like where everything comes from the farm except for like the fish. Like everything. Or from local farms, right? Okay. Now I I don't actually have an answer to that. There there's there's a uh who wrote the book? Um I can't remember the guy's name. There's a there's a there's a book about Food, Freedom, and Liberty, and that's not the title. And I've actually, I did have a blog post about it, but the there, there's more than a few examples of, of farmers who went to have, you know, they butchered their own meat, mm-hmm. cooked their own meat, invited people for dinner, and the FDA and the USDA and or both showed up and shut them down. For cooking their own product. <clears throat> And eating their own product. Yes, because it wasn't inspected. That's just ridiculous. so you you in in many now I don't know and I be I would actually as the culinary libertarian guy this is something I should know the answer to so you've given me an idea for another show. <laughs> You're welcome. How what is what is the loophole here? Is is there a loophole? Is there how is this being done? Because it's a good thing to find out. Maybe it's but, maybe it's the processing center, right? So maybe maybe the the cows are going to processing and they're inspected at processing so that they can then be shipped out to the restaurants. I'm just well, guessing. I would shot that, in the that's dark. That's possible. The, the, what most people probably would find amazing is that 80%, and let's just be conservative and knock it down to 60, but I'm pretty sure 80 is right. 80%, 60% of the beef processed and sold in the U.S. comes from four companies. That they're all just taking the meat from a whole bunch of different ranches from around the country, yes. right? Yeah. So the the cow you're eating is more well-traveled before it was slaughtered and then after the case than you are. So <laughs> when you read in... Yeah, and that's, a pro- that's the lot, problem. <clears throat> that is a problem, not the problem. It's when, you, when you read that uh, E. coli was discovered in beef product in 27 states... It's not that there's 27 issues. It's that there's one issue at this gigantic factory mm-hmm. where the cross-contamination is so bad that it, that it ended up in 27 different states making a couple hundred people sick. Yep. So, and, and I'm sure those huge companies have lobbyists that keep the laws oh, benefiting them. The, yeah, the, so. the, the crony capitalism and the lobbyists and the, and the circle jerk going on that allows that system to stay in place is obscene. It's, it might be equally as bad as the pharmaceutical industry paying the FDA, the agency that inspects them, a fee so they can inspect them. Yep. No, yeah, that's no kidding. No so kidding. We paid for all those drugs too. So. <clears throat> You you ain't done paying, brother. You ain't done by a long shot. Um, so part of the meat problem is that it's it's this this corporate government monopoly in charge of 
where it's done and how it's done. What, mm-hmm. So one of the ways to advance now, uh, a farmer in Virginia named Joel Salatin um, butchers his chickens on his land and has a has stainless steel tables, a concrete slab, and possibly has a roof with no walls to keep the rain and the sun off. And he has no inspectors on site and he runs a clean ship and he won't ship it to you. If you want polyface farm chicken, you got to go, go there. to Virginia. Huh. How's Show up when we do butchering. You want it? Get here early. But he somehow, we're got, done, we're he, done. He somehow got approved to do just that. He's not approved. He doesn't need approval because sunlight turns out to be the best disinfectant there is. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> there is nothing better. And and the FDA has challenged him on that, and he said, "Show me what's better." And they can't uh, show him. <laughs> Have a good day, Mr. Salvin. <laughs> um, in um, Michael Pollan's book, the omnivore, uh, the omnivore's dilemma, I think there's a mm-hmm. whole chapter on. Uh, it's actually a really good book because the last chapter is about he wants to make a meal entirely from. His own hands, meaning not that he uh, that he foraged all of the ingredients or participated in the butchering of the of the animals. And it's been a while since I've read it, but it's a fascinating read. And there's a whole chapter on Salatin. Um, Joel is an animated character. He's got many of his own books out, um, and and is on one of the leading people in in the fight against monopolistic control over food, particularly livestock. Yeah, now, that's one of my mom's favorite uh, favorite books, actually, The Omnivore's Dilemma. Well, it's a good book. Um, there's a guy from Kentucky, Representative Thomas Massey, has introduced into uh, Congress a bill called the Prime Act, which they, they always mean some words. I don't remember what the, what the title means, the acronym is. But basically what it is, is to allow your local farmer, rancher, give him permission to butcher cows at his location and sell you the meat. Now, in Oregon, I know that there's a pork producer. She's not far away, and I can get pork from her, and I, I need to contact her and find out what is it exactly that allows her to do that. Yeah, you should I just have her on your show. Maybe what, I should. Um, Dan, what do you I have? Know, what do you, what do you have? What are you having for dinner tonight? Uh, <laughs> maybe pork. I'm not. Oh, um, we are probably going to have uh, probably have some steak, um, and then we, my wife bought some asparagus. So we'll have asparagus, and um, the kids. I'm not sure what they'll have. <laughs> they don't want to eat with. They don't eat what I make. I make. They don't want it. How dare they? That they, they'll learn. Well, when they, they'll learn when they get older. Uh, well, we'll see. Fifteen-year-old <laughs> still won't eat asparagus. No. I think it took me till I was in my twenties before I really liked asparagus. But <clears throat> taste, well, taste come, taste come over time. You know, you just got to keep trying, and eventually, you never know. You might. Well, you might the, like it. The ten-year-old starts to like things, and one of the things, and so it's. I don't mind that they don't like it because it just means more for me, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> and then when they want, when they oh, this is good, like, crap. I mean, yeah, great, but crap. Now I got to make nine, make more. 
Nice. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to go hang out with Dan some more on his podcast, The Culinary Libertarian. This man is a, a wealth of knowledge. You want to give any shout outs? Oh, well, sure. Um, the best place to find everything is the culinarylibertarian.com. Uh, so you can find uh, headers for recipes and the podcast and and my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, One Pot Meal You Can Make, and you can do them. It's very simple. Um, and that's probably all I got. Awesome. Go get Dan's book. Listen to his podcast. Dan, thanks so much for hanging out with me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Oh, anytime, sir. Anytime. And uh, enjoy your dinner. I hope the kids don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Awesome. Well, cheers, buddy. You have a wonderful rest of your day, and I feel like we have so much more to talk about. We'll have to do this again sometime. Oh, okay. Not a problem. Awesome. All right, buddy. We'll have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you very much. uh, Cheers, sir. Thanks. Rock and roll.